Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. the conclusion. It's elbow block. Massive haymakers from the champion. But oh, that's T-Show out of the corner. Hello, hello, everybody. It's Jack from Cultaholic. Back again with my second ever episode of Matches of the Month. Uh, thank you very much for the nice feedback on the first episode. And we're just going to carry things on. Uh, this is the month where everything goes wrong. Um, because last month, I think my opinions kind of aligned quite well with the general consensus. Whereas this month... I think I've gone slightly off track. Uh, there's going to be matches that I thought um, were not as good as most people did online or seem to online. But then there's going to be matches that I actually thought were better than the general consensus as well. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the best matches of the month and also some of the most talked about matches of the month, even if they weren't necessarily the best in terms of quality. But don't worry, because by the end, I'll give my rundown of the 10 best matches, in my opinion, of February, and then I'll update my ongoing end of your rankings obviously we're only going to be two months in by the end of this podcast but it's a long journey buckle up and i hope you enjoy it's time to take a look at the matches of the month roman reigns has Sami Zayn in his sights looking to end the dream sammy caught him sammy exploder into the corner sammy's got roman in possession roman reigns is stunned Take your shot, Sammy! Oh, Superman punch! Cover! Is it enough? Sammy stays alive! Now, last month, I kicked things off talking about Wrestle Kingdom, which was quite handy because it came in the first month of January. Uh, this week, I think things might be a little bit different because we're kicking things off talking about a show that came later on in the month. But I had to start by talking about Elimination Chamber, didn't I? And all the, all the discourse that's come out surrounding one of the matches in particular. But there's another one I'm going to mention as well. Um, the first, I mean, I could only start by talking about the most talked about match of February this year. Roman Reigns versus Sami Zayn for the undisputed WWE Universal Championship in Montreal, Quebec, Canada at Elimination Chamber. Um, I think this match was kind of an amazing, dramatic spectacle. But honestly, and if, if you disagree with me, obviously that's totally fine. But hand on heart, I can't say that it was an amazing match, in my opinion. As I said, amazing, dramatic spectacle. Maybe not an amazing match. And I'm not saying that, you know, we can't take the crowd into account because the crowd were unbelievable for the hometown boy, Sami Zayn. 
And I'm not saying a great crowd doesn't elevate a match, because of course it does. We've seen it so many times. The clearest example was probably Hogan versus Rock at WrestleMania 18. But this match in Montreal is hard to analyze as a match, I think, because of just how dramatic it was. Not in terms of like, whoa, dramatic spots or anything like that. I mean, in terms of how dramatic it felt, like it actually felt like a drama, like a TV drama or a stage play. Didn't feel entirely like a pro wrestling match as we perhaps know it. Um, And I know that wrestling matches are dramatic, but this felt like a different medium almost. And I thought that the action, the wrestling itself suffered because it was it was secondary to the drama rather than working in tandem with it as great dramatic wrestling matches do this one felt maybe like it was interested more in being a piece of drama than it was uh interested in being a great wrestling match and i understand why that's that's fine if wwe want to go that way but that means that i can't then consider it one of the best matches of the month obviously but i totally understand why they did this and on the whole obviously the storyline and the bloodline and everything it's all been unbelievable so good with the tension ramping up week on week um so all those very slow moments in this match of roman monologuing and then you know the end of the interference of jimmy and especially jay and then kevin owens right at the end i get why all of that had to happen i just don't know if it all together made for an excellent match as opposed to, as I say, a, a piece of drama. There's nobody to stop Roman Reigns. Officials are down. Roman's got a steel chair. I can only imagine what Roman has dreamed of doing to Sami Zayn's body with a steel chair. Wait a minute! It is Jay Uso! People perhaps, I've seen people compare it to CM Punk versus John Cena, which I'm biased because it's one of my favorite matches of all time, but... I can see where the comparison stems from. It's a beloved indie-style underdog in their hometown with an absolutely raucous crowd behind them taking on a very, very dominant champion. Um, As I say, Punk versus Cena is one of my favorites of all time, so obviously I think that one's better than this one. But I think there's two specific things that make it better than this as well. One, uh, the storyline of Punk versus Cena, they weren't that familiar with each other. There wasn't as much, you know betrayal or whatever you want to call it they were more like um thematic opposites punk was the rebel cena was the company guy whereas in this case it's been a bit more melodramatic hasn't it sammy's been friends with roman he's fallen out with roman and all that sort of stuff so i think the storyline of punk versus cena helped the drama work in tandem with the wrestling rather than eclipse it as i think has happened in this case uh and also the second thing as well that I think elevates Punk versus Cena is that because of that, because the wrestling was allowed to exist on a similar level to the drama, uh, they went out there and wrestled their absolute hearts out. I've just thought of a third reason as well, which makes it a better match. CM Punk won. Um, And I don't want to wade in too heavily on the debate of whether Sammy losing the match was right or not, because it feels like ever since the end of Elimination Chamber, that's been the dominant discourse on wrestling Twitter and wrestling social media. But um, that's not really the point of this podcast But I do think that, you know, if Sammy had won, it would certainly have elevated this one match. It might not have aligned too well with the long-term plans for WrestleMania, and that's a different story. But in terms of just this one match and how good it was, yeah, I think if Sammy had won, it would have become an entirely different quality of match altogether. We'd have had to reevaluate how good it was and how all the drama led up to that moment of Sammy winning. But that didn't happen, obviously. And obviously that's not WWE's priority, and it's not the direction they're going in, but... Yeah, so that's just my thoughts on um, Zayn versus Roman at Elimination Chamber. Not one of my favorite matches of the month, but as I say, in my view, it barely it barely was a match at all. It was far more dramatic and twisty and turny than what we're perhaps used to. Is this Sammy's moment? Is this Sammy's time? 
The moment Montreal is waiting for. Mocking Roman. Not a wise move. Superman punched the Reigns. Do you believe in miracles? Hello, the candidate. Sammy's going to do it. My favourite match of the night at Elimination Chamber was the Men's Elimination Chamber match. Austin Theory defending the US title against a cavalcade of opponents. Seth Rollins, Damian Priest, Montez Ford, Johnny Gargano and Bronson Reed. Um, I think this was the best match of the night. Not the best chamber match I've ever seen. I don't think anyone would argue that. But still a very entertaining chamber match that did a really good job. And this is where I think Triple H and his road agents or whoever was in charge deserve a lot of credit because um, it did a great job of spotlighting each individual member of the match at some point or another. Gargano got a few big moments, especially that terrifying Hurricane Rana off the pod onto Rollins. Bronson Reed had certain moments where he looked like an absolute monster. Priest, I think, had moments where he stood tall, having like kicked everyone's heads off and stuff. Rollins was the biggest star in the match anyway, and uh, obviously had the big mania set up with the finish, and that which we'll talk about in a sec. And obviously Austin Theory got the rub of winning and coming out still United States champion. But I think the most important thing to realize when we uh, talk about this match is that the match was basically a gigantic flashing signpost made by Triple H, essentially saying, look at Montez Ford, isn't he a massive star? Montez Ford surveying the scene with an eagle eye view. Where is Ford going? Montez Ford is hanging from the roof of the chamber. The hell is he doing? Get down from there! And I've really got no complaints about that. Uh, Ford is someone I've enjoyed watching for a long time, whether it be rare glimpses of singles action or in tandem with Angelo Dawkins as the Street Profits. But I don't want to be too harsh on Dawkins because I think he's one of WWE's most improved wrestlers in recent years. But Ford's <laughs> Ford's the star, isn't he? He's got star quality all over him. He's a real all-rounder as well, not just in terms of in-ring ability. He is an all-rounder in the ring. He can frog splash, he can... He can, I don't know why the frog splash is the first thing I've mentioned. It's his most jaw-dropping move, isn't it? But he can he can do high-flying stuff is what I mean. He's good technically. He's good at brawling and strikes and all that sort of stuff. He's good at working the sports entertainment slow-paced style. He can speed it up when he needs to as well. Um, but he's also a real all-rounder outside of the ring. He's very charismatic, effortlessly cool, um, can, be, can be really, um, I guess, kind of, What's the word I'm trying to think of here? Infectious. His energy is infectious. You, you want to you get hyped along with him. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm a bit worried for the future of the Street Profits because he's so clearly a solo star in the making. But we'll have to wait and see what happens. And hopefully Dawkins still um, has a great career after their inevitable split as well. Um, the, he had his moments in this match, obviously. Hanging upside down like Spider-Man, for example. Uh, hitting the rock bottom and the people's elbow and stuff just to pop the crowd. But it was clear they wanted Ford to get cheered in this match. And he really, really did as well. Then he got injured, kayfabe injured. They took him out of the cell after he was eliminated or out of the chamber, sorry. Um, and then that allowed Logan Paul to come through the open door and cost Seth Rollins the match. Seth lands on his feet, going for the pedigree now, and he hits the pedigree on Theory, and Rollins could be moments away from winning the United States Championship. Looking for the stop on Austin Theory. Rollins lining it up. What the? Logan Paul! No! Logan Paul! 
Did it ruin the match? I don't think so, but I I can see why some people didn't like it. Um, you know, I'm still a, a kind of oddly fine with Seth versus Logan at WrestleMania. I think WrestleMania is the only stage where we can kind of accept these weird matchups and to a certain extent enjoy them. Um, my prediction for this chamber was totally wrong, by the way, and a bit outlandish. I thought Bronson Reed would win to free up theory for a thing with John Cena at WrestleMania without the US title being tied into that storyline as well. I thought they could have the theory Cena stuff and the United States title stuff separately on the card, but it looks like it's all going to be tied in together if Cena is indeed involved. So that was not my finest moment in the office when Bronson Reed turned out to be the first person eliminated from the match. But it, as I mentioned, he still looked good. Everyone in the match looked good. And I thought it was a very enjoyable pay-per-view, big stipulation match. The kind that only WWE really do in that way. And they did well with this one. But it was not the only big event of that weekend or indeed of that night. So now let's see what happened on the West Coast. Oh, traps her in a pin. Oh, they're both, both wrestlers rolling with each other. Lock and step here. Oh, oh wait, wait, oh. hold up, hold up. Could this be it? Boom! The money maker! Money That's on it. money! Money on our mind! Yes, I'm talking, of course, about New Japan Pro Wrestling's battle in the Valley in San Jose, California. Um, this was, it wasn't a one-match card, but there was one match everyone was talking about heading into it, and it wasn't Okada versus Tanahashi, which tells you something about how big this other match was in terms of the global wrestling landscape. It was, of course, Kyrie, formerly known as Kyrie Sane or Kyrie Hojo, uh, Kyrie defending her recently won IWGP Women's Championship against the artist formerly known as Sasha Banks, Mercedes Monet. So on the podcast, the Cultaholic Wrestling podcast the other week, Matthew asked me what this match was like. And I said, yeah, it was pretty good. Like, it was a good match. And he was like, I heard people saying it was the best women's match ever. And I was shocked when he said that. Not because I didn't think it was very good. I did think it was a good match. Hence why I'm talking about it right now in glowing terms. But I don't think it was... Um, I don't think it was even maybe the best women's match of the month, which we'll get onto later on. But I do think it was a good match anyway. Um, I think you've always got to be careful when you're listening to people's opinions about Sasha Banks. I feel quite bad for her because for some reason, she's one of those people that everyone has an extreme opinion on. She's either the best of all time or massively overrated. I fall slightly towards the more positive end of that. I think Sasha, once her career is all said and done, will be looked back upon as one of the most skilled and important women's wrestlers ever. But... I do think that there's some weird hysteria that goes on regarding fan discourse about Sasha Banks. Like, people either love or hate her, and I feel quite bad for her being subjected to those extremes all the time. Hopefully she stays off Twitter for the most part, as we all should. Um, this match was not necessarily the perfect or the easiest scenario for Mercedes Monet, I should stop calling her Sasha Banks, excuse me, for Mercedes to walk into for a debut, because... It was really highly anticipated. They had a high bar to live up to, but I felt like the hype perhaps, <clears throat> excuse me, wasn't as big as it deserved to be because Wrestle Kingdom, her debut appearance at Wrestle Kingdom, kind of wasn't received that positively. It was really early on in the show. It was kind of a weird vibe. The crowd weren't that loud for her and the finisher was executed a bit weirdly when she hit on Kyrie for the first time. So... On one hand, she's walking into this match with a high level of expectation. But on the other hand, people are like already a bit down on her. So 
I think I think I don't think it was an easy situation for either woman, but especially for Mercedes Monet. To be fair, on the positive side of things, she had a great opponent in Kyrie to work with. But as I watched this match, I thought maybe not the opponent that she shares necessarily the most natural chemistry with. I've seen Sasha Banks have matches with people she just clicks with, like Bailey, of course, the most famous example. But also, I thought that WrestleMania main event against Bianca Belair, I thought those two women just clicked with each other. You know, Bailey again is the obvious example. They have amazing chemistry together. Against Kyrie, even though they're both incredibly talented wrestlers, I thought almost like they were battling not not against each other. They were clearly cooperating, but I thought they were maybe trying to overcome a lack of natural chemistry to put on what was a, a very good match. Um, part of that is because Mercedes rises to the occasion time and time again. I think she's an incredible big stage performer. She's got a sense of it. She, she knows when there's a big match and she knows how to up her levels when there is. And the reason I say that maybe they don't have the most natural chemistry is because I thought at certain stages, the match maybe got a little bit, no, not messy, that's not a, really a great word to say, but it got a little bit loose here and there, but not in the big moments. Maybe the connecting moments, kind of the glue that held the match together wasn't as sharp as it could have been, but they nailed all of those big set piece moments. The uh, the shock use of the belly to Bailey for the near fall, loved that. Sasha avoiding the elbow by kicking upwards, I loved that as well. Sasha, Mercedes avoiding the elbow by kicking upwards, I loved that as well. Kyrie reversing the three amigos, the ref bump was done well, the table spot was done well, and the finish, they were all great. So all of these elements combined were awesome. All the big set piece moments were great. It's just the bits in between, the minutia, if I can use a very pretentious word. Um, that might have been what held it back very, very slightly. Um, but on the whole, as I say, I really enjoyed the match. And one extreme positive as well was that it got a long time. I think after Wrestle Kingdom, a lot of us were worried that New Japan wouldn't value the match as highly as they should. They wouldn't give it much time. That turned out to be completely false. And they did give it, I think, over 25 minutes. I think certainly over 20. So it, it had it had a chance to develop and to really... Um, it, it gave both women the time they deserved. It was not, and people are, this might be where I start to get disagreed with, I think. It was not my favorite match of the night. That was um, the Loser Leaves New Japan match between Jay White and Eddie Kingston. A curious stipulation because, well, first of all, because we knew Jay White was going to lose because of all these reports floating around that he might be going to WWE. Also a curious stipulation because of Eddie Kingston. I know he's worked in New Japan strong and everything, I just don't really see him as like a New Japan guy. Like, it's a weird one. I get. I guess maybe they wanted to match up Jay White with someone he could feasibly beat rather than, like if Jay White's going against Tanahashi, you know that Tanahashi's not leaving New Japan. Like, do you know what I mean? So maybe that's why. Anyway, I didn't watch this one live because it was on the same night as Elimination Chamber. But I did look at the reviews for it on cagematch.net, a wonderful resource, by the way. And those reviews, the user reviews underneath the match, were all over the place. You had people saying it was their favorite Jay White match. You had other people saying it was their least favorite Jay White match in recent memory. Um, this is the match that I, I worry that I'm overrating the most compared to general opinion online. Um, but I guess because it's my opinion, it's the match that I feel everyone else has underrated considerably. Because I really thought this was great. Um, I thought the story they told was excellent. I thought it was emotional in a way. And I liked... Because for those who don't really know, Jay White has been like the heeliest of heels in New Japan for ages. He's just despicable. Like, you know, he just cheats all the time. He, he He's shameless. He's a shameless heel. He's shameless about his heel tactics. 
And um, in this match, he started doing all that, stalling, bailing out the ring, being afraid of Eddie Kingston, basically. And Eddie Kingston is the perfect person to tell that story against because he drew the aggression out of Jay White. And he was like, come on then, fight me. Essentially saying, fight me like a man. And Jay White, at one point in the match, you saw tremendous facial acting from Jay White. You saw him go, you know what? All right, then. Let's do it then. And he started fighting back. And it was at that point, I was like, wow, this is genuinely like quite thrilling. Like, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm surprised people rated it lower than I had. It seems like a lot of people didn't particularly enjoy it, especially Jay White fans. I saw one or two comments saying things to the effect of, this wasn't a Jay White match. It was an Eddie Kingston match. And I think, good. I like Jay White style of matches. It's very throwback, very heel versus face, very simple storytelling, but in an effective, drawn-out, long, dramatic New Japan way. But Eddie Kingston's matches feel like a fight, and I love that sometimes, and I loved it here. The drawback for me, I suppose, in this match is that it felt quite thrown together because of Jay White's situation. Is he leaving? What's going on there? And clearly he is. But um, the match fully delivered for me, and I didn't quite get what people's, what people's damn issue was with it. Um, no, I mean, obviously let me know on the socials and what have you which match you preferred of that whole weekend, Elimination Chamber, Battle in the Valley and all that sort of stuff. But for me, it was Jay White versus Eddie Kingston. And I feel like I'm missing something in terms of people's discontent with it. <laughs> Unbelievable back fist again! I think Jay White literally spit in the hand. Oh, third! Jesus! White on wobbly legs here. His career on the same spindles. Are these the closing moments of the New Japan Pro Wrestling career of Jay White? Plants him! A taste of his own medicine! Back! Oh, God! Has him! Plants him! One! Could it two. be? What? Let's have a look at what this idiot did in America. So smart, so smart, oh my god. Oh Joe, no, Joe, don't do this, don't do this. No. Not a muscle, he's thinking muscle buster, no way. He can't, he can't, no! Oh my god. Both men, guys, both men. The muscle buster into the exposed board. Look new champion. Two, three. No winner of this match. What a freaking match. Now we reach the section of the podcast, which I've called in my notes, American TV. Because uh, we're going to talk about some American TV matches. And there were some absolute bangers this month. Um, starting off with maybe my favorite of the American TV matches this month. Right at the start as well on February 1st, AW Dynamite for the TNT Championship. A no-holds-barred war between Darby Allin, little Darby Allin, and Big bad Samoa Joe. <laughs> I know I've gone very fairy tale there, but um, what a contrasting pair of wrestlers, and what a recipe for action that was. And it was certainly it was really good. Obviously, this was the culmination of a bit of a mini feud with Joe beating Darby back in December, then Darby beating Joe for the TNT title in his hometown of Seattle, Washington, in January, and then in February, you know. The, the rubber match, the blow-off, and what a good match it was. I saw a comment saying that this was Joe's best match in years, uh, and I decided to go on Joe's cage match list of matches and, and see how far back you could realistically argue 
how, you know, when was his last great match? No disrespect to Joe, by the way, who I think has a pretty good chance of being looked back upon as an all-time great once it's all said and done and should be looked back upon as such. But you could still argue that is this is his best match maybe with his feud with AJ Styles on the WWE main roster, although that was kind of character stuff over pure match quality. And if you discount that then, it might even be his best match since his NXT title run, his first NXT title run, way back in 2016, like nearly seven years ago, which kind of shows a lot of things. It shows how Joe's getting older, fair enough. It shows that he's had bad luck with injuries. It also shows how WWE messed him around a lot during the latter stages of his run. Obviously, then they let him go and brought him back and everything. And it was just nice to see him go out on TV in a major promotion and put on a banger with an opponent who, you know, also deserved it. I'll I'll try and explain why this match was so good, but if you've seen it, you'll know already. It wasn't even just your standard wild hardcore brawl because they were very inventive as well. There were different elements used. Darby wearing that thumbtack hoodie, uh, Joe using his towel, his signature towel that he always wears to the ring to block the thumbtacks, yes. Um, Joe getting a table out from under the ring and Darby just diving straight through it into him before he'd even put it down on, on the floor on the outside. Um, it was a unique match. You could tell they'd really thought about what they wanted to do here and it made for a better spectacle because of it. Joe obviously won and has moved on very quickly to his next opponent, resuming that feud with Wardlow. I think I'm fair in saying it's not as hot a feud as the Derby one, but that's more the fault of the booking than Joe or Wardlow in particular. Uh, Wardlow, by the way, is a baffling. He's a real prime example of the bad side of Tony Khan's booking, in my opinion. Uh, Someone who had all the momentum in the world, was on a real, real roll. And then Tony just kind of went, hey, he's over now, and just forgot about him. You could even argue that Wardlow, having destroyed the man who is now AEW champion, deserves a title shot or something. It was a weird... I don't really know why they did it, but it was a weird trajectory for Wardlow, getting built up, built up, built up, destroying MJF, then feuding with, like, the 20 lawyers or whatever. Remember that? It was a strange decision. Um... Not to dwell too much on a part of Tony Khan's booking that I really don't like, because Tony Khan does, you know, he does have some good booking ideas as well. And when he when he's on, he's really on. It, it can be really good, as we've seen. Um, hopefully they can get some momentum back for Wardlow with Joe here. I expect Wardlow to beat Joe now that Ring of Honor is getting its own established TV show or weekly show or whatever. Then Joe will have the Ring of Honor TV belt, you know. Wardlow will have the TNT belt. And and it seems to be, that seems to be the way it's going to go. We'll have to wait and see anyway. Darby, don't really know what's happening with him. Um, he and Sting have hinted at something big that's going to happen. I don't know if they were just talking about the whole retiring the Great Muta stuff or helping him, teaming with him when he retired. But um, again, we'll have to wait and see what that's all about. I don't really know at the time of recording at least. Next up, I want to talk about the latest match between Hangman Adam Page, my special guy. I just love him. He's so noble, but such a badass at the same time. And I love him because he's a vulnerable character. He's a manly man, but he's not afraid to show his sensitive side. Versus a man who never shows his sensitive side, John Moxley. <laughs> um, it's toxic masculinity versus modern masculinity. I'm joking, of course. I think they're both probably quite good guys, aren't they? Hopefully. Um, the build-up to this one... I mean, I talked about the latest Moxley-Hangman match in the last episode of this very podcast where Hangman won, evening the odds after Moxley KO'd him, legitimately injuring him in the match before that. This is the third match of the series. It's a simple story. Also, it took place in Moxley's home state of Ohio as well, so the crowd were right behind him. 
there was a big old brawl to start off the match, both in the crowd and at ringside. The, unfortunately, the cameraman, well, the camera cut at the wrong time to the shot of the ring and saw Moxley lying against the, the corner, blatantly blading. Oh, dear. Does Moxley blade too much? Yeah, I think he probably does, doesn't he, to answer that question. I think that the issue is, I, I try to think of a theory about why he blades all the time. I wondered if he's trying to do that thing where, you know how in, in boxing and some other combat sports, certain athletes are known for being easy bleeders, especially once they've been cut open multiple times around their eyes and stuff. Scar tissues builds up and it's just too easy to cut them open. Is Moxie trying to do that? Is he trying to portray himself as a man who's been in so many fights that now his skin's so easy to break open? Maybe. Maybe that's what he's going for. Otherwise, I find it a bit uncomfortable, to be honest. I don't think he should feel the need to bleed in every single match that he has. You see, it, it's not even a joke saying it. He bleeds every week now, doesn't he? And I just don't know if that's a very good look. <laughs> um, I'm still a big fan of his, obviously. Uh, in this match, at first, I thought maybe he kicked out of slightly too much, but he's one of those wrestlers where it's not actually too unbelievable. He's known for his resilience. He's known for his bravery. So it makes sense that he would kick out of a lot of stuff. Also, it was in Ohio as well. It was a personal feud. If there was ever cause for a wrestler to be kicking out of stuff he maybe shouldn't have been kicking out of, then this is the ex this is the one where it makes sense, I suppose. This is the exception to that rule. Um, and Moxley got the win in his hometown. And it sets up this Texas death match at Revolution, which if it goes as we're predicting it will, could be the best match of the night and will almost certainly be talked about on this very podcast next week. I'm really looking forward to that one. I'll be amazed if there is no blood. <laughs> I'll just say that now. I'll be amazed if only Hangman bleeds. Well, we'll see what happens. Moxley will definitely bleed. Next, uh, I want to talk about, oh, this was a good one as well. This was a really good one. But again, one that I maybe thought was not as good as other people did, maybe. I don't know. It was, um, it was Brian Danielson versus Roosh. And I thought it was a great match. But I saw people saying it was like one of the best matches of the year so far, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, it was the one that started with Brian being locked in the locker room so he couldn't make it to the ring and he nearly got counted out. But then he broke the door down because he loves this business so much and he loves wrestling. Um, Brian gets to the ring and they have a pretty good match. I've made my notes here. I've put Danielson's pretty good, isn't he? Yeah, that's quite obvious. Um, but Roosh is also quite an interesting opponent for Brian. Um, I think that Roosh is always treated like he's some sort of absolute destroyer who should be in the upper echelon of the card, but never quite get, he's never there. I know he's a former Ring of Honor champion and everything, but in AEW, he doesn't really get main event level matches, does he? Not on pay-per-view anyway. Um, this is probably his highest profile AEW match ever, in fact. Certainly the first one that I can remember. Um, and the story was a quite a simple one. Brian got absolutely battered, got busted open, and then fought back and bravely won because he's Brian Danielson. He's amazing. There's not much more to really say about that. It was just a cool match. Um, again, not my not my favorite of the of the month so far, 
But a lot of people really have this down as one of their favorite matches of the year. I think Brian's had better matches on TV this year already against Takeshita, against Bandido. But this was a nice addition to that canon, I suppose, in this journey towards that match with MJF at Revolution, a match that I am nervous about, not because I doubt the skills of MJF, not because I doubt the skills of Brian Danielson, one of the greatest of all time, just that I worry about the place an hour-long Iron Man match has in a wrestling show. Um, you know, the famous one is Brett versus Sean at WrestleMania 12, which is divisive. A lot of people don't like that match very much. The Rock versus Triple H at, I believe, Judgment Day 2000? Certainly a 2000 pay-per-view. Um, I don't like that match at all. I thought the ending was mad. It's the one where The Undertaker comes back, debuting, I think, Biker Taker as a gimmick, and attacks Triple H, which gets The Rock DQ'd, which costs him the whole hour-long match. Triple H wins because Undertaker attacked him. It was a weird finish, and it ruined the whole match. Um... A rare misstep for WWE in the year 2000, which is one of their historic best years ever in terms of quality. They were on fire that year, man. But anyway, this hour-long Iron Man match between MJF and Brian, I think they could really pull it off. But I worry more about the booking side of things than the action. I think the action will be superb. I have no doubt they can go for an hour and make it compelling. We've seen Brian go that long recently with the likes of Hangman Page. I don't think we've seen MJF go quite as long, but he's a young guy He's in tremendous shape. He wrestles that kind of style that you can see lasting for a long time. We've seen him have long matches, just not this long. I think it'll be fine. I think it'll be good, in fact. It's just the booking that I'm scared about. But we'll we'll watch anyway, I have no doubt. At like 5 a.m. UK time. <laughs> but um, it's an interesting one. This match with Roosh was good for Danielson, but I'm, I'm, I've enjoyed other Danielson matches this year more, and I'm looking forward to that MJF match more than I... I enjoyed this one. It was still cool. Oh, the next one on my list. I don't know if it counts as TV, but it was on the network anyway. Uh, Wesley defending the North American title against Dijak at NXT Vengeance Day in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm very glad we get to talk about NXT because I only get to talk about it really at work on the weekly podcast. And we do deep dives into the world of NXT because it's mad. The booking is insane. This is not the NXT we all fell in love with in the last decade. This is Bizarro World NXT where characters are wacky and weird. There's cowboys and a, 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 a magical, mystical um, cult of people. And there's all kinds of the gimmicks. It's like the new generation, but for the modern era, it's amazing. Sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes it's brilliant. Um, one thing they do have is a lot of talented wrestlers. It's just the storylines go off kilter a lot of the time. But... Um, there was a collection of good matches at NXT Vengeance Day. The match we all thought was going to be amazing was um, Carmelo Hayes versus Apollo Crews, two out of three falls, which instead turned out to be really a vehicle to get Carmelo Hayes over as he continues his push towards Bron Breaker and the NXT title. He won two falls to zero, which you don't really see too often in two out of three falls matches, but it's not something I necessarily disagree with. I think we were all just blindsided because we expected that to be the show-stealing match of the night. Instead... I think most people agree the best match of the night was this Wesley-Dijak match. Not a very fully developed feud. In fact, Wesley was kind of the third wheel in the feud, which is actually going on between Dijak and Tony D'Angelo. Um, Wesley's just kind of there with the belt, just going like, I'm a fighting champion, come and fight me if you want, and taking on Dijak in a match that was good. It stole the show on the night, um, which probably doesn't say much about the rest of the card, but it's misleading because the rest of the card was decent, especially 
this match. Um, this was comfortably the best match of the night, and Lee did really well as the underdog, despite being the champion, which is a difficult place to be in. Like, he's coming out, hyping up the crowd, going like, I'm the undersized guy taking on this giant, but also I'm the fighting champion, and I feel like I should win this match. It's a difficult balancing act to do, isn't it? But I think he really nailed it. Um, Dijak also reminded us all that he's not just the guy who used to be T-Bar, he's also the guy who used to be Donovan Dijak, a really good wrestler. Um, and it, a lot of it was classic big versus little guy stuff, which is all great. For me, it fell apart very slightly towards the end, where it just became about both guys kicking out of way too much. And then the fit. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Nish made Lee's victory over this monstrous guy feel a bit overshadowed because Tony D got involved and helped. Tony D and his sidekick Stax got involved and helped Wesley retain. So... After he'd overcome all the physical odds against Dijak, he then still needed a bit of help, even if he didn't want it. That's Wesley. But I still enjoyed it for what it was. Um, the feud between Tony D and Dijak rolls on. I have no doubt they could have a good match together. And I have no doubt that Wesley could still have some absolute bangers if they keep the belt on him. So no complaints here. Decent match. Certainly the best NXT match of the month. This is what NXT is about. Raising the bar, setting a new standard, and Wesley doing just that as North American champion. Oh, oh no, no, Dijak! Dijak caught Lee! Fell right into it, Vic. Come to look at feast your eyes, trying to counter. Oh, counter by Lee. Poison Rana! <laughs> and Lee now turning things right around. What the heck is Lee thinking? That's gotta be it! this stage of the podcast i've noticed a theme as i've been talking about these matches which is that a lot of them have been saying yeah it was a really good match but which um which i feel is perhaps misrepresentative of what a month it was uh looking at the best matches of last month's episode i think january's ceiling was higher 
But I think February's floor was higher. I think we had more good matches this month, fewer but better matches in January, if that makes sense. I think it does. Anyway, we're heading to Japan uh, and February 2023, I'm going to call the month when New Japan made all the other Japanese promotions their absolute bitch. (laughs) Because not only did you have the New Japan champion beating the champion of a different promotion decisively, you also had (laughs) an aging, I think 54-year-old New Japan legend winning another promotion's top title, beating the ace of the company. So it's been a tremendous month for New Japan. Maybe not the best for other Japanese promotions, but we'll explain all of that in due course. First match I want to talk about from Japan this month is Kazuchika Okada versus Shingo Takagi. Okada defending the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship at the new beginning in Osaka. The build to this one is that Okada obviously won the title in the main event of last month's Wrestle Kingdom, beating Jay White in a match that was part babyface triumph, part tribute to the sadly uh, passed away Antonio Inoki, the, the founder of New Japan Pro Wrestling, of course. The match kind of threatened to be overshadowed, though, certainly to a Western audience, because it came just after Osprey versus Omega, which was comfortably the best match of January, in my opinion, and the front runner or a full match of the year by the end of January. We'll see if it's still the front runner at the end of this podcast when I update my rankings, but we'll get to that in due course. The Okada match, which came after Osprey Omega, was very emotionally fitting to Inoki and was still a very good match, just maybe not the kind of ultra-amazing work rate match we expect from Okada in the main event of Wrestle Kingdom. It was more just a simple but emotional and effective story, Okada defeating Jay White and reclaiming his throne as the Japanese hero, and that's fine. Afterwards, Shingo challenged Okada to close the show, and that's where we got to this match at the new beginning in Osaka on February 11th. This is where we have to talk about something that's really thrilling, which is match structure. (laughs) So a lot of people online are getting sick, and I kind of agree, you know. A lot of people are getting a bit sick of what what I've seen be called the Bushi Road style, which is named after the company that like the parent company of New Japan and Stardom. Um, these long, epic main event matches, which all kind of follow a similar sort of pattern. This was certainly an example of that, Okada versus Shingo. But did that impact the quality of the match? Because I've seen a lot of people rate this as one of their matches of the year so far. And I, and I think that part of the reason that I maybe struggled to get invested in this match more than some people did is because the result was quite predictable. There's no way that Shingo was beating Okada so soon into his latest reign. But that's not necessarily the biggest issue I had with the match because you could say the same for mercedes Monet versus Kyrie. Um, Mercedes was obviously going to win that match, but I still enjoyed that match more than this one. Um, I think the biggest issue is possibly that format I was talking about, that that main event Bushi Road structure, which builds on the, the uh, traditional King's Road style which is more associated with all Japan historically than New Japan, but which has become really a staple of of New Japan main events. Kind of goes like, I'll try and run through an example, which this match happened to follow almost to the letter. Uh, A tentative start, both men really working each other out, then a big spot on the outside or on the apron, um, some stuff in the guardrails, maybe Okada jumps over the guardrail, uh, then, then, then the one who's been beaten down on the outside beats the count back in, 
There's slowly escalating action. There's like escalating action all the way, false finish, both men are down, and then it, it escalates again. That happens a few times. There'll be a strike exchange or two with both men firing up. Loads of counters as we hit the finishing stretch. The hitting of secondary finishes, maybe even the hitting of finishes and kicking out of that, possibly uh, wrestlers hitting a finisher, then getting greedy and going for a second, and that gets reversed and everything, and the momentum shifts. Um, both men kick out of some big stuff and then the winner chains together a few big moves and makes the pinfall. That's what happened here with Okada in the role of the victor and Shingo in the role of the loser. And it was long. It's like half an hour long. I'm not saying that I dislike that style necessarily, depending on the match. But this match to me felt like it was going through the motions of following this certain pattern. That's not something that I necessarily agree with. And, and uh, I can see why people loved it because both men are two of the best wrestlers currently in the world. Let's be frank about that. But maybe I just wasn't in the mood when I watched it for an epic length New Japan main event match. But then again, last month, I really enjoyed Osprey and Omega. I think that was just a bit more dynamic, a bit more of an update on a formula that's become quite, quite well known now. And I think this match, in contrast to Omega Osprey last month, really didn't do too much to innovate or to change that structure. I, I, I understand that people might disagree, but... That's just how I feel at the moment about this epic length New Japan style. And by the way, it's not just New Japan. A lot of the top Japanese promotions are doing it these days. New Japan is just the most visible culprit, I think. Okada had two high-profile matches this month, though, and I enjoyed the second one a hell of a lot more. It wasn't even at New Japan, though. It was at a Noah show. It was at Keiji Muto Grand Final Pro Wrestling Last Love Holdout. Uh, we recently saw the final match of The Great Muta. This is the final match of... Just the man behind the mask, the Kaiji Muto, one of the biggest Japanese wrestling legends of all time. And it was his last match. So this, this Okada match was actually like playing second fiddle on the card, but you can understand why. Muta, or Muto in the main event, lost to Naito um, in what wasn't, you know, given his age and condition, wasn't the best match in the world, but it was a nice emotional send-off to an all-time great. But this match... Okada versus Kaito Kiyomiya, New Japan versus Noah, the two champions of each promotion. I thought it was excellent. Um, I liked it because it was different. As I've just said, I liked Osprey Omega in January because it was slightly different, a different version of that main event New Japan style. This was a different version of that style as well because Okada was fired up and Kaito was fired up because the build last month was that Kaito had disrespected Okada in his house. And this was a more vengeful, more heelish Okada taking on this upstart, um, throwing him out the ring early on multiple times and Kaito running back in like this defiant punk kid. <laughs> Sound weird. Um, there was also a huge German suplex early on that Okada dished out, which was like a, I'm not, I'm not taking it easy with you. That's what that German suplex said. He also took him into the crowd DDT'd him on the outside, things we don't often see Okada do, certainly not with such a degree of brutality. And it really set the tone. Then you had Kaido Kimiya fighting back bravely, and then a bit of the match that at first I didn't enjoy, but then when I looked at the whole story, I thought, and when I looked at the whole story and the fact that the story might not be over yet, I thought, I can accept it, I can get on board with it. Which was Okada destroying Kiyomiya, covering him, one, two, and then, and this is the champion of a rival promotion. Okada lifts up Kiyomiya before the referee's count of three, hits a few more big moves on him, and finally makes the pinfall and wins the match. And I thought, oh, New Japan have just, wow, they've just big-time Noah massively there. Then I calmed down, 
because wrestling's not that important <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. But then I calmed down and I went, actually, you know what? Maybe the story's not over yet. And I wouldn't be surprised because we've seen nowhere guys appear in the G1 Climax before. Maybe this year Kiyomiya gets in the G1 Climax and maybe he's in the same block as Okada and we get a big rematch. Just the way this ended with Okada getting such a decisive win over Kiyomiya made me think the story isn't quite over yet. I hope not anyway. Because on top of all that, I thought it was a brilliant match. Far more my speed than, than Shingo versus Okada was, which I'm surprised about because if you told me there was a Shingo versus Okada match this month, I'd be like, oh yeah, that'll be class. And it was just a bit slower and longer than it needed to be for me. Um, but this one, yeah, I thought it was really good. Okada versus Kiyomiya, give me more of that. Get in my belly, as they say. to a different Japanese promotion now for another epic length main event but one that I did enjoy quite a lot was um, Stardom for the World of Stardom Championship the champion Julia taking on her former friend and now foe Suzu Suzuki uh, this was at Stardom's 12th anniversary supreme fight in Osaka Japan on February 4th I'll explain a bit of the build because I think it's quite important here so I feel like Julia the champion of Stardom is in a position where she's under a lot of pressure. She's been built up for like the entirety of last year, maybe even longer, as the next big thing. And that seems to be the pattern that stardom fall into when they're booking the top of their cards. They spend ages building up the next big champion and then giving them a long, sometimes like a year-long reign. They've done this with at least the last three champions. You had uh, Utami Hayashishta, who beat the ace of the promotion, Mayu Iwatani, despite being relatively new, not just to stardom, but to the wrestling business. Uh, Hayashishta, despite her lack of experience, was given the belt and had a long, dominant, impressive reign before losing it to Suri, who then had a long, dominant, impressive reign until losing it at the very end of last year to Julia. Here she is. This is the new, you know, it's all about her now in 2023. If you don't know Julia, she's like half Japanese, half Italian, looks very distinctive, looks very cool. Um, and the general consensus of Julia seems to be that she's good, but maybe not quite at the level in ring of other top names in stardom. But she's kind of simultaneously got the most star quality out of anyone in the company, without question, because she's charismatic as balls. She's got the it factor. She looks great. She feels like a star. And she's good enough in the ring, certainly, to back it up. It's just that maybe, whereas other wrestlers in stardom are wrestling first, you know, star potential second, she's totally the other way around. Like, she's a star who can also put it together in the ring. She like she gets interesting storylines as well. Back in 2021, she lost a hair versus hair match, shaved her hair, still looked cool, and and every even in defeat, she gained more fans because of it. And she just seems to be picking up momentum over the past few years in a way where you think, will she outgrow stardom? Like, what's next for Julia? However, Suzu Suzuki, her opponent in this match, is only 20 years old. 
And after I watched this, I was like, oh my God, this Suzu Suzuki girl is full of potential, man. Like she's been apparently tipped to succeed wherever she goes, be that at home in Japan or as a crossover star in the West, like someone like Asuka perhaps. And I can totally see why. She's scarily good for being only 20 years old. She's a badass. She just exudes that badass energy. Real kind of like I am an ass kicker kind of thing. She also, hate, handily for this match, hates Julia. Apparently they both came up together in the promotion Ice Ribbon and then Suzu felt betrayed because Julia left Ice Ribbon for stardom. So when Suzu then arrived in stardom, bang, instant feud between the two, instant feud between their respective stables as well. Last year... They had a time limit draw in, in the annual tournament where they both cried afterwards because they were fighting their former friend and then, you know, it was a draw and they both, it was, the emotions were too high. Julia went for a handshake. Suzuki rejected it. And I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm looking forward to this one. And I think it delivered. Um, before when I was saying that Mercedes versus Kyrie wasn't my favorite women's match even of the month, this was the match that I think probably was. I thought it was, it, it told a dramatic story well. And I thought it was very, very good. But I don't know if it was, you know, one of the matches of the year so far. But I think both women have the potential to put on match of the year candidates as 2023 rolls on. There was a nice prolonged kind of grappling section to start, which showed off almost a British wrestling kind of style that the two could do really well. But then quickly it became very intense and nasty, which is the way it should have been because this is a personal feud. A lot of the stuff that I've just complained about with Okada versus Shingo, the drawn-out epic length, the slow pacing, I think worked better here because it was more personal between the two. So when they decided to let the match breathe with these dramatic moments and these long sequences, I think it fit a lot better. Last month, you might remember if you listened to that podcast, I talked about a match in Gleit, or Gleet between El Lindemann and Kaido Ishida, two wrestlers I was pretty unfamiliar with. And I talked about how my one drawback with the match is that the winner was Kaido Ishida and I felt like the match was more of a showcase for the man he beat, El Lindemann, the outgoing champion, than it was for Kaito. My drawback in this match was that it made me far more interested in Suzu Suzuki, the unsuccessful challenger, more than it did Julia, the ongoing champion and biggest star in the company currently. I'm way more invested in Suzu Suzuki. Midway through this match, as I was watching it, I was like, oh, wow, she's really coming alive. Like, everything she did was hit with a bit more ferocity. Great bumping from Julia, by the way, making her friend look like a million bucks in there. But Suzu Suzuki, man, she's got a new fan in me, 100%. What I would suggest is that perhaps it's not the end of the world that she didn't win, because, you know, Julia's story's not been fully told yet. And also, we might see a rematch down the line. The handshake between the two was, I think, accepted this time in the aftermath, and they seemed to part on okay terms, and this was all in Japanese, so I'm just guessing. But it seemed like Suzu was asking for a rematch or saying this isn't over somewhere down the line. And I'm fully in favor of that. Suzu Suzuki is my new favorite wrestler and best friend. Um, switching promote. Why did I say she's my best friend? That's weird. Switching promotions now to All Japan Pro Wrestling. Now, last month, you might remember, I talked about a tag team match that I loved which set up a title match, which I'm going to talk about now, between the champion and ace of All Japan, Kento Miyahara, and his former tag team partner and now rival, Yuma Aoyagi. They had a match on February 4th, the same as the last match, I believe, as well, same as Julia versus uh, Suzu Suzuki. And uh, it was really good, but the story's not over yet. I'll explain in a second. Let's talk about this match first. 
The tag match that set this up last month was one of my favorite matches of the year so far. This match didn't quite match it in terms of the, the sheer quality, but I still really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the look of this match. It was in quite an interesting arena. There was real like volleyball court vibes or like squash court. Not squash court, that would have been tiny. Imagine that. Real volleyball court vibes. And it was another match similar to all the other Japanese matches I've just talked about in terms of it was long and it was epic. But like Julia versus Suzu Suzuki, it worked because the drama felt less manufactured because there was real background and real beef between the two. They used to be friends, now they're not. I think that can excuse more epic moments. And there was parts where like, they were absolutely screaming at each other as well. And Kai, uh, Kento, sorry, Kento Miyahara was being a real piece of work. Shades of like Okada in his I am the ace cockiness. He's been really almost heelish actually, which was interesting to see for like the hero of the promotion. I really like the closing struggle of the match as well. The, uh, Kento has this like, cross-arm German suplex thing that people very rarely kick out of. And so, similar to like Kenny Omega and the one-winged angel, you had Yuma Aoyagi struggling to not get hit with that move. Ultimately, he did. Kento Miyahara won, uh, defying the people in the build-up who thought this could be the end of Kendo's title reign and that Yuma could have been the man to take it from him. But Kento managed to hang on. And, and then, <laughs> just a few weeks later... On February 19th in Tokyo, Kento lost the belt. Now, my history of knowing about all Japan's booking is that I'm not a huge fan of it because they can't help themselves. They, they kind of have Kento hold the belt because he's the ace. Then they take it off him and stick it on someone else. And then he wins it back, but like it always disrupts his momentum rather than building on it. So Kento lost the belt to uh, Yuji Nagata. Now, if you've heard of Yuji Nagata, he's a New Japan legend. He's 54 years old. He is really, like his heyday at the top of the card was like late 90s, early, early 2000s, let's say, early 2000s. He's the top champion in all Japan now, defeating their current main man. It's a baffling, baffling booking decision. As a moment, it's brilliant. I can't argue with that. Like if you watch this match, the pop when Nagata gets the win is insane. But what were they thinking? <laughs> um... It was a good match considering that Nagata's like 54 and to be fair, it's still good for a 54-year-old. But he obviously has physical limitations and Kendo had to like run around in circles working really, really hard. And Nagata tried his best as well and they did make a great match out of it. A match that I feel has been overrated slightly for the moment it produced. Meltzer gave it four and three quarter stars. I don't think you could watch it and, and I don't think many people would necessarily agree with that. I certainly didn't. I enjoyed it, but I just... I don't know. <laughs> I can't escape this lingering feeling that it wasn't a good idea. Yeah, the, the booking's just a huge issue for me here, especially in conjunction with the previous match I just mentioned, the, the title defense against Yuma Aoyagi. How can you justify not having the guy's former tag partner and rival beat him, but then you can have this aging legend of a different promotion beat him instead? I don't know. Maybe it's for publicity. Certainly hit the headlines more than if Yuma had won the belt from Kento. It certainly hit the headlines more than that. I just, I, I'm just like, all Japan, what are you doing, lads? I don't know. Makes for an interesting thing to talk about, I suppose.
de Japón. Queridos amigos, aquí de Kraken Hall. Retuvo el título mundial Welter, un muy lastimado Titan contra Solano Junior en una batalla espectacular. And finally, the miscellaneous section, where I just talk about some matches that maybe didn't fit into any other category. Starting off with uh, a CMLL match presented kind of by New Japan, though, as part of the annual Fantastica Mania New Japan CMLL cross-promotional shows they do at the start of every year. This was Titan versus Soberano Jr., uh, main eventing day five of Fantastica Mania, with Titan defending the CMLL World Welterweight Championship. What after I've just talked about a load of matches there in a row and said it was cool, very long match though. After all that, what a palate cleanser this was. When about 12, 13 minutes, two babyface lads in their masks going absolutely hell for leather. It started off with an immediate dive to the outside. Absolutely quality. What more could you ask for? When the dive happens, I think it's Titan who just hits a dive within the first few seconds of the match. Look at the faces of the crowd. Look at their faces in the front row of Kuriken Hall. They are buzzing. They love this sort of stuff. And we do too, New Japan. So I'm not saying bring an end to the epic matches. Just mix it up a bit more, yeah? If you need two Mexican lads to get in there and show you how it's bloody done. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting quite passionate about this. Um, I really enjoyed it. And it wasn't, by the way, a mindless spot fest where there's no attention paid to damage or selling or any of that. Because there was. Uh, at one stage, Titan went for a crazy double foot stomp onto Soberano Jr., who was lying on the outside. Titan jumped from the top rope to the outside. Soberano moved. Titan landed on both feet, jammed one of his knees, sold it for the rest of the match. It wasn't like... There was only a few minutes left in the match anyway, but I thought it was a really nice touch. It, it did not play into the finish. Well, it did because he was struggling while he locked it in, but Titan still won via submission. This was an absolute sprint, especially by New Japan standards, but I'll suggest it was all the more enjoyable because of it. Um, so yes, that that was Titan versus Soberano Jr. Loved it. Love both guys. Thanks for the entertainment, lads. The next match, oh no, I'm about to say the name of a tag team that if you've never heard of them, you're going to go, Jack, what are you talking about? That's not the name of this tag team. But it is. It was a tag team match in big Japan wrestling between the team called Astronauts. That's fair enough. That's the team of uh, Fuminore Abe, who I believe is competing in 16 karat gold this year in Germany. Fuminore Abe and Takuya Nomura taking on the team of Strong BJ. That's the name of the team, Strong BJ. Um, that's the team of Yuji Okabayashi and Daisuke Sakamoto. Now... Just to peel back the curtain slightly, part of the reason that I wanted to start doing this, these monthly podcasts was because I really enjoyed submitting my ballot for the Voices of Wrestling, which is a great website out there uh, on the internet sphere, Voices of Wrestling, uh, match of the year ballot. I applied, got my ballot, submitted my 10 matches of the year, and um, this was my number three. Sorry, not this match, but a match between these two same teams last year, Astronauts versus strong BJ. That was my number three match of 2022. It was a half hour time limit draw where they all just went at it at a ridiculous pace for half an hour and tore into each other. And it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. It was gritty. It felt like serious, but like at the same time, it was quite hilarious because they just wouldn't slow down, but not in an unrealistic way because they were tagging in and out and stuff. And the like the rivalry and the hatred really came through in that match. So that was one of my favorite matches of 2022. Um, 
And on my Voices of Wrestling ballot, it was my, yeah, it was my number three match. I think number two was Danielson versus Hangman. I think number one was the first match between FTR and the Briscoes. But this was like the rematch of that. And it wasn't as long. Like it wasn't as good because it only went like 10 minutes. But it, I had to watch it. I had to check it out because it was the rematch of my number three match of the year last year. And I enjoyed it still. It was fast paced yet again, but it ended because Yuji Okabayashi, who's a big old bloke, got on the top rope, jumped off, squashed one of his opponents and his partner, neither of whom could answer the 10 count. And again, it ended in a draw. Now, usually I wouldn't have bothered mentioning it on this podcast because it was a bit of an inconsequential match because of that. But I think it implies there's going to be a rematch, a proper rematch with a proper winner sometime down the line. And when there is, oh, I'll be there. Maybe not in the front row because plane tickets are expensive, but I'll be there on my computer watching. So yeah, great match between two teams. Very short, not as good as last year's match, which I urge you to find. But um, yeah, that's Astronauts versus Strong BJ. Fuminori Abe and Takuya Nomura, two brave and tough lads against two giant men. Strong BJ are giant men. And, and what's not to love, you know? Takuya Nomura, by the way, was Kento Miyahara's partner in that match I talked about last month. The, the really good All Japan tag match that set up that tag title match. Uh, that set up the world title match, excuse me. You know what? Let's move on. I love this match. Uh, the final match I'm going to talk about is, yeah, it's another New Japan one. But again, it's one that deviated slightly from the usual formula. Will Ospreay versus Taichi at day one of the new beginning in Sapporo. The story here is that Taichi for a while has... I hope I'm not disrespecting either wrestler when I make this comparison... But Taichi's kind of like the Miz of New Japan, <laughs> where like he doesn't care about being a cool heel. He doesn't care about being an evil heel like evil. He doesn't care about being like a despicable cutthroat heel like Jay White. He's just an annoying heel. <laughs> he's just a real heel's heel. Uh, except he's not anymore. Taichi's now a babyface and for, has been for a little while. And surprisingly, the crowd are well behind him because of it. So that's an interesting wrinkle to start this match. Also, it takes place or took place in Sapporo, which is on the island of Hokkaido, the northern main island of Japan. And uh, that's where Taichi's from. So not only is he a babyface now, he's got the home island, I guess, support, not the hometown support, but the home island support. And he really turned up for this match with Will Ospreay. Now, this isn't exactly new. For Taichi, as I say, he's been kind of a surprising, valiant babyface for some time now, completely in contrast to his role as the heel's heel of New Japan. But um, it worked really well, and it made for an excellent match with Osprey. Yes, you know the drill by now. It could have been shorter, but I think one advantage that a wrestler like Will Osprey has in New Japan or in the New Japan landscape is that he's very imaginative when it comes to putting sequences together. Uh, uh, back at when I worked at WCPW backstage, I saw Osprey put together matches. When you're walking around backstage at a wrestling promotion, you're kind of constantly avoiding pairs of wrestlers putting their matches together, calling matches to each other before they go out there. I've always been absolutely baffled how wrestlers have such incredible short-term memory, by the way. I don't know how they remember this so well. I know they talk to each other in the ring. I know they remind each other of what's next and everything, but it still seems crazy. Whenever I've been involved in a match, even a tiny, it's always been like a tiny snippet of the match. And from the moment I learn what I'm doing to the moment I go out there and do it, <clears throat> I'm pacing around backstage, reminding myself of the sequence of events over and over in my head. 
How do wrestlers go out and do an entire match? I don't know. Sorry, back to my point anyway. That was a bit of a tangent. Having walked around backstage at these wrestling shows, often ones with Osprey on, he is often the guy who takes the lead, I suppose, in putting the match together and seems to suggest things with real imagination and real confidence. He's full of ideas and he's committed to them. And rightly so, because he knows what works. And when you hear the crowd during his matches, they usually do work. So here we had interesting little moments that set it apart in the mind. It makes it stand out as a unique match compared to any other matches you might have seen that night, for example. So we had Tai Chi, for example, going for a flash pinfall, Osprey kicking out just in time, and Tai Chi rising to his knees off the canvas in anguish, like, oh, he kicked out. But as he's in that position on his knees complaining, he's in prime position for Osprey's hidden blade, and he nails him with it, leading to a nice false finish. We also had the strike exchange right towards the end where it looked like Osprey was just wearing Tai Chi down, wearing him down. It looked like Tai Chi was done. And then he came back with like a ferocious hometown baby face right hand, which popped the crowd big. Yeah, the pacing was excellent. The timing of these little moments was excellent as well, buried in and around the match and in and around the match. What am I talking about? Buried in the match, within the runtime of the match. And the finish was unique too. Tai Chi was done totally spent against a better opponent and yet still bravely beat the referee's 10 count to get back to his feet only to be finished off anyway with another hidden blade and then the Stormbreaker. And it was a nice emotional ending to a hometown babyface's like valiant stand against someone regarded as the favorite in the match who did win, but Tai Chi gave a really good showing of himself. And I think that's a nice story to tell. Here we go. Oh, Osprey fires first. Poison rod. And this time to the second, to the top, and the super no! Instead, get a flat. Two, yo! Oh, oh hit a blade. The hit and blade, but he can't cover him, Kevin. He hasn't been able to cover him yet, but he could have a leisurely stroll around the block if he wanted to before covering Tai Chi after hitting Blade. So, without any further ado, before I leave you, let's go through my 10 favorite matches of February 2023. At number 10, I'm going to stick the men's Elimination Chamber match. I thought it was very cleverly done. At number 9, the third clash between Moxley and Hangman in this feud. I'm really looking forward to the fourth, the Texas Death Match at Revolution. Hopefully, I'll be talking about that next month on this very podcast. Number 8, Kyrie versus Mercedes Monet. Uh, not, the, as I say, not the most natural chemistry between the two, but they overcame that. They rose to the occasion. Number seven, Julia versus Suzu Suzuki in stardom. I'm now the world's biggest Suzu Suzuki fan. I think she's excellent. I think Julia was great as well. Number six, that absolute sprint in New Japan between Titan and Soberano Jr. of CMLL. Two lads that I wouldn't be opposed to seeing wrestle each other every month. Um, number five, Kento Miyahara versus his former tag partner and friend Yuma Aoyagi. The better of the two Kento Miyahara title matches this month and the one where he didn't lose to a 54-year-old man. Uh, number four, Will Ospreay versus Taichi. I've just talked about it. Number three, my most overrated, well, my, my most underrated match of the year so far, but I think everyone else will say, Jack, you've overrated that match massively. I loved it. Loser leaves New Japan between Jay White and Eddie Kingston. Number two, AW Dynamite, Darby Allen versus Samoa Joe for the TNT title. What a brilliant match. And number one, the Ace of New Japan versus the Ace of Noah. Kaito Kiyomiya versus 
Kazuchika Okada. That was an excellent match, that one. I hope they have a rematch in the G1. That's what my prediction is. Kaito will be in the G1 and they'll have another banger and Kaito might even get the win. We'll see. Let's now see how this all affects my overall top 10 standings of 2023. Remember I said that I think January had a higher ceiling for quality wrestling matches, February a higher floor. So what I will say before I read this out is that the first half of the list is quite February heavy, but the higher part of the list, five to one, no, just four to one. Four to one are all January matches. Let's go. Number 10, uh, Titan versus Soberano Jr. Number nine, Kento Miyahara versus Yuma Aoyagi. Eight, Osprey versus Taichi. Seven, JY Eddie Kingston. Six, Darby Allen versus Samoa Joe. Five, Kaito Kiyomiya versus Kazuchika Okada. And then the top four is still my top four from last month. Number four was Kaito Kiyomiya again, this time taking on Keno uh, on New Year's Day. Number three, El Lindemann versus Kaito Ishida in Glate. Uh, that one's available on YouTube for free, I believe. Number two, that All Japan tag match I alluded to earlier. Kenta Miyahara and Takuya Nomura taking on Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura. No relation, I believe. And number one, and still my match of 2023 so far, my frontrunner from Wrestle Kingdom Night 1, Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega. It's been a, it's been a bit of a breakneck couple of months so far thank god this podcast nearly over i'm getting blown up as they say um yeah it's been a break now a couple of months so far loads of great matches to check out and thank you for listening to me talk about them to you this as i say is the podcast where i think that uh oh maybe it's all started to go wrong maybe i've thrown some opinions out there that you don't necessarily agree with and that is fine and i'm eager to know your opinions as well so if you've got any thoughts on any of these matches or any matches from the month of february do tweet them at Jack the Jobber to me at Jack the Jobber uh, and, you know, get involved with the discussion, everyone. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe out there and I'll see you next month. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Cultaholic.